Welcome to episode 43 of the Rapid Change Matters podcast, a conversation with hypnotherapist and co-founder of Fix My Mind, James Mallinson. My name's Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm chatting with top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I've got big news. Rapid Changeworks is now running live training events, and you can check out the latest events coming up by visiting rapidchange.works, where you can also download a free, quick-to-read PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, along with all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. After two personal life-changing hypnotherapy experiences, today's guest moved from a multi-award-winning career in the media industry to embark upon a career in change work. He spent over a thousand hours in training, and now, as a clinical hypnotist, master practitioner of NLP, and timeline therapist, amongst other things, he co-founded the Fix My Mind organization alongside master NLP trainer David Shepard. This is a business designed to up the service and consistency levels that clients experience when they seek out a therapist. Welcome to the podcast, James Mallinson. Hi, Howard. Hello. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, James. And I'm really hoping we can jump straight in and kick things off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started. So I'm a therapist though I think most of us would probably use the language hypnotherapist just because that's what clients would most associate with what we do um, and I've been full-time now for over seven years mm-hmm. and I love it and I got into it in some ways by chance in other ways almost by planning but um, I'd always been fascinated by hypnosis my mum was very ill when I was quite young and I remember our doctor who became quite close to us as a family literally doing the um, clasped hand experiment on us when I must have been about seven or eight and I was blown away by it and I hadn't really thought about it um, much until I started my media career back in 95 and um, like a lot of people in the media industry um, uh, Thursday nights are very big nights it's a very big heavy drinking and socializing culture and it's quite frankly a, a fairly druggy culture as well and um, I always knew that I had a slightly compulsive personality and ended up uh, having never taken drugs before starting to take cocaine on a fairly regular basis, not to a level where I was doing masses of volumes of it, but enough to actually really notice it affecting me on a personal, emotional, financial level and just say no didn't work. And so um, back in 2006, I looked up hypnotherapists and found a very lovely woman called Nina Ballinger and went and saw her on June the 1st, 2006. I'd been up all night, um, went to work, very bleary eyed and uh, saw her at one o'clock, left at two o'clock in the afternoon and have never wanted to or um, had any cocaine since then. And it changed my life in that instant. And I still carried on working in the media industry. And uh it's just the beginnings of the recession back in 2007. I was made redundant. I sat on a beach in Bali going, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And I'd always known that I wanted to work with people in a therapeutic context, but basically had sold my soul and thought, well, hold on. Hypnotherapy is amazing. I had an amazing experience. And I literally, on an old school Nokia phone, was working out how many sessions of what I paid for to stop cocaine to be a good therapist, texted my Uh, therapist Nina from uh, the beach in Bali and it just so coincided that the course that I ended up doing was enrolling a few weeks later and so that began my journey into into changing careers into what I do now. That's it's absolutely amazing and 
that experience that you had, was it, did it, did it feel like it required any conscious effort after you had that experience uh, to, to stay away from, from cocaine or it just, I mean, how did it manifest? What, what, what was it that you noticed that was different after that session? Um, that I could go to the pub, go to parties and be around friends, be around people, literally see people racking up lines of coke and having absolutely no desire to do it. I mean, um, Nina installed a, a pretty strong aversion, which I'm not going to go into in depth here because it's literally disgusting um, as the, the, the root of last resort. But I've never even had to draw on that. Um, so it was just normal. In, in many ways, it was the classic archetypal experience that people want from hypnosis. I, it's a total cop out. You go, you're highly motivated. The, the therapist does something amazing and it puts the lid on whatever it is that you don't want to do anymore. And it was astonishing. It, it, I mean, I love hearing stories like that. And it, it's great that you've kind of entered this profession, having had that personal experience, because what you bring with it is this total and utter congruence that this stuff works. And indeed, you know, in the rapid fire round, and by the way, if those of people who are listening haven't uh, tuned in yet, underneath his episode uh, right now, you'll be able to see um, there's a, a little box where you can click on, click on it and hear the rapid fire round. But certainly one of the things that you said in terms of most important belief for a change worker to have was that it works. And would you say that arguably, you know, you carry a congruence around that because of the personal experience you've had? I'd like to think so, for sure. Um, and I think it's really important because inevitably there is a level of criticism with some clients who will say, does it work or have you ever had any experience? And to be able to sit there hand on heart and say, well, yeah, this happened to me um, or that happened to me um, and say it with cast iron truth, I think gives you a lot of validity as as a as a therapist to, to a potential client, just think they feel safer and know that you, you've had a genuine experience. And whilst I don't think that's necessarily vital, I think it does add, as you say, a level of congruence to, to what it is you're speaking to clients about. I'm curious, James, about that experience that you had and that it, it felt to you like the, as you said, the archetypal kind of moment where you come in one way and you leave and something's changed. But what did you bring to that? session in terms of was there a feeling that you were going to take responsibility for that change yeah so i'm with you and that i think that a client has to bring all of that motivation and desire to want to change um i think the potential setup that i had as a client was one of utter naivety in that i genuinely thought something was going to happen to me which in retrospect obviously exclusively didn't happen um, I went with having done no pre-session work. I was highly motivated. You know, I really wanted to stop this thing. And I think as most experienced listeners of your podcast will know is that that motivation that a client brings in is of equal importance as much as the client, as much as the practitioner's belief and skill that what they can do work. It has to be that marriage of client and practitioner working at the same level it doesn't necessarily have to exclusively be but that's what i thought i brought i thought i brought a massive level of motivation and determination to succeed and i checked this woman out for weeks going you know checking out whatever reviews are available at that time to be able to say does this person have credibility so what i guess cialdini would say high levels of social proof which gave her more influence in my eyes over me and I'm interested because I think there's a difference, perhaps, between motivation for change and responsibility of change. And I'm going to run something by you, and I'm curious to see whether this is your experience or not. Um, but I, I've often had the experience where someone will come and ring me and say, Howard, you know, I was given your name, your number by someone, a friend of mine who, you know, they'd come to see you, and there was this total transformation and change. And, you know, I want you to do the same for me. And years ago, I probably would have thought that, wow, that's going to be a really easy person to work with because their expectation is that I can really do this for them. 
years later, I look back and realize, actually, it's kind of counterintuitive that they, I, I find it's less successful when they come with that mindset of it worked with a friend. And I always wonder whether it's to do with the fact that they just feel like they have to take less responsibility for it because they found the guy that can do it for them. Right. And I think that's it entirely. I My experience totally echoes yours. Um, because those clients don't necessarily have that pain of, I really need to sort this problem out. You know, they've heard whether in a social or whatever environment that I, I saw this person and this person helped me achieve X and then people go, Oh my life, that's easy. Um, their motivation, their pain point isn't there. And I genuinely think that away from motivation, um, when clients who've never engaged with you before, as opposed to coming recommended to you um first contact with you is greater uh than people who've just been referred to you by somebody else and i think that pain point is of massive necessity to help um potentially achieve change so how would you go about dealing with someone um who says well i've been recommended you by such and such a person and they got a great result with you do, do you do anything particular to kind of reconnect them with the responsibility that inevitably they're going to have to take for the change yeah so you know whether it's a and all clients that i see would go through the similar kind of process um of when i initially speak with them on the phone i'll spend 20 minutes ascertaining what's going on um and asking them you know what's your level of motivation to succeed in this classically smokers i'll say and I, you know, I think like a lot of people, smokers are not the joyous of clients that I think any of us have, but say to them, look, what's your motivation to stop smoking? Um, and I'll ask them to assess it somewhere between zero and 10. If it's less than a six, I won't see them. If it's higher than an eight, I won't see them because I think they're deluded. Um, it's that narrow piece of work. If someone's been referred to me, I'll just ask them a whole load of questions. And if within that, I get a sense that they're not appropriately motivated, then I'll say to them, I don't think you're motivated right now come back to me as and when you're ready. Give me a call in a couple of days. And if they don't, then they're clearly not motivated. But say they say they are motivated, then all clients have to go through a similar process once they are um, in the system, for example. So what they'll have to do is fill in a very detailed questionnaire before seeing me. And I'm very explicit and say, you have to give four to six pages of answers um, because one sentence answers don't help me help you and won't bode well for successful therapy that's the exact language i use and if those clients and in fact any client doesn't fulfill that that criteria then i just won't see them so i think you know it goes potentially to a bigger point of which is how do you you know select clients as much as they're selecting you so you end up with more likely success stories and i think that's a really important thing and actually quite a real uh, kind of a tough thing if you're just starting out and you know you're spending time hoping that the phone is going to ring with that client you know trying to build a business and then suddenly you find yourself on the phone to someone almost kind of going well I don't think you're ready but then it goes back to congruence right and I'm not going to pick you up on your language too much here because you could edit me to sound terribly but I would never hope when I launched a business, of course, we all want to succeed. But if you're building any business on hope, then it's a short term route to failure, right? If you want to launch any business in any sphere, whether it's therapy or anything else, you've got to go through the motions. And of course, you are not going to generate a staggering amount of clients initially. But if you do everything that you can do well in terms of acquiring clients, then that volume will start to come through. Equally, I get that you know, you don't want to sound desperate and and equally not turn anyone away. It's a fine balance, but it goes back to congruence. Either you want to do what we're doing for the right reasons, which can also include make good money. But, you know, you've got to be OK with saying no. I, I, I absolutely. Um, I totally agree. And I, I, I think the thing is, is I'm just remembering when I was starting out. It was yeah. just that feeling of, you know, you know, I remember doing it was the first ad. I mean, I look back now and I cringe, if I'm very honest. <laughs> uh, and I put an ad in the local paper uh, for phobias destroyed. Nice. Um, was the phrasing that I had. And it cost a fortune. And finally, one person rang up 
you know, and I'm thinking, oh, this is brilliant. And I'm just wondering, you know, whether whether I would have found it easy to turn them away. And and actually, you know, I, I think there is such merit in it now, you know, I'm very happy to turn people away and say, no, no, you know, come back when you're ready. How are you happy now compared to what weren't you happy about doing it before? What's the difference? Uh, it's a good question. I like it. He's turning the tables on me. Um, <laughs> no, genuinely, I think the, di- the difference now is that I genuinely believe that I can serve and help them better by getting allowing them to, to come when they are truly ready. Otherwise, right. you know, it doesn't actually help me in the long run to see someone and it not work. Um, I think that's disempowering for them because then instead of looking at, you know, what could be an amazing experience for them, yeah. um, they end up having experience where they go, well, hypnosis doesn't work. And I always think it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, if if you have a plumber that comes and can't fix, can't, uh, can't fix something, you know, you tend to go, well, that plumber was no good. You don't yeah. tend to say plumbing is no good. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of hypnotherapists out there that kind of forget that someone might give hypnosis a go with one person and then make an entire decision about the efficacy of hypnosis based on one occasion. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're getting people at the right time. So I think both for their sake and for my sake, I feel totally okay with saying not right now. And don't you think that's something that a lot of training doesn't cover is the importance of knowing how and why to say no for sure and i would argue there's a lot of training that doesn't cover many of the aspects that i would say a lot of therapy therapists in the real world kind of face and for example and i'm curious whether you had this I think there are some trainings whereby you do a lot of practice with people on the course. Yeah. And we forget that they are absolutely tenderized in terms of they've already been on, they already have been signed up. They've got the t-shirt, the hypnosis t-shirt, the NLP t-shirt. They're on board with it already. And they've got an invested interest to show that it works. So they're a little bit maybe more compliant easier to work with and what yeah. happens is that you go away from a training going well i've i've already worked with hundreds of people in practice and it works every time and then suddenly you get a real person that walks in and there's a difference yeah and i i was talking with david actually about this exact thing just the other day and it's how i love cooking and i went down to limewood which is a cookery uh, so it's a great hotel and cookery school near me and did a day's um, masterclass and they taught me how to make gnocchi they taught me how to butcher a bird they taught me how to make an amazing tartan and I can still do all of those three things relatively well um, but what I can't do is know the principles about how to make pasta or pastry or butchery and I think a lot of therapy schools will teach you here's how to make a recipe but inevitably things don't go according to the recipe. And then unless you know the principles of cookery stroke therapy, then you can very soon, um, as much as rapid change works, equally you can have rapid change that doesn't work, right? For sure. Would you argue that there are some trainings that are very good at giving people um, confidence without the necessary competence to join in? Totally. Um, and I think the people that come out of those courses rave about them and they can get some really good results with a very limited range of clients, because then if things start to go and evolve as human nature does, then what do you do? You know, oftentimes these courses just give you a basis of how to stop X within Y confrain, con constraint rather. Um, and if things start to deviate or just human nature kicks in and something else kicks up, then all of a sudden you're going, right, what do I do here? How do I deal with this? And if you haven't got the training or you don't understand the principles about what you need to do, then as the therapist, you run into trouble really, really fast. And I think that's a I think it's I think it is 
dangerous and terrible and very scary. Well, when I asked you on the rapid fire round, what's the worst advice currently being given out within the world of change work? Um, I, I loved your answer. I thought it was really interesting to explore. Can you remind us what you said? That fast equals one session for every one every time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, this is the Rapid Change Matters podcast, and rapid yeah. means different things to different people. What right. do you see as rapid change? What's rapid change for you that you feel comfortable with? Um, sometimes it can be as fast as 11 minutes. You know, you can work with someone with a phobia or a panic attack nowadays, even trauma. And by the astonishingly good havening technique, you can help a client stop experiencing those issues. That's rapid. But equally, rapid can be five sessions. If I'm working with a client on a uh, on a problem that's got a pretty deep structure where their values and beliefs are not aligned and they're not in a good place, that can take five sessions. Um, both are rapid in the context of other longer therapeutic modalities. You know, we will all have had clients that have had the either incredibly long CBT experience or the far greater psychodynamic Jungian experience. Um, but for me, rapid is fast, but fast doesn't always mean instantaneous. And I think that's what some people are blurring the lines about. For sure. In fact, a moment that I haven't shared with listeners before, uh, at least to my knowledge, or I don't think so, is uh, there are some rooms that I, I see clients in and I bumped into a therapist and I'm not going to mention obviously any names, um, but I, I think she has a longer style, a longer way of working. And we bumped in, we started chatting and I said I had this Rapid Change Matters podcast and maybe she might be interested to, to hear it. In fact, now I'm regretting bringing this up because she might be listening in now and no <laughs> offense is meant. But um her response when I said I had a Rapid Change Matters podcast uh, was, oh, she said, oh, Rapid Change, that's so important. And absolutely. In fact, I recently have managed to get my six-year process that I do down to just two years. Shut up. <laughs> that was absolutely uh, what she said. And I thought, wow, um, just wait till she tunes into this podcast. I mean, that's terrifying, right? That is utterly, utterly terrifying. Um, I mean, it should be as fast or as long as the client needs, um, which shouldn't always be predetermined. But that's lunacy. Well, I think it, it's just that idea of setting out with even the phrase, you know, I run them through my process implies there is a pre-existing construct outside of the client, that's going to happen regardless of where the client is, which I find a little unsettling. Mm. I'm curious because you've, you've talked about that there were a couple of things um, that happened in terms of your own life that led you on this path. Uh, and we've talked about the first one. What, what was the second one that happened for you? The second was on my master practitioner training. So um, after stopping what I did back in uh, 2006, um, I basically still had some issues. So I had the skill of not doing cocaine, but the drivers that made me want to just change how I felt were still there. And I'd tried CBT, I'd tried psychodynamic therapy, I'd tried a lot, and nothing could, and nothing had to that point really shifted it. And it really culminated um, by a breakthrough session. Uh, which happens, as a lot of your listeners will know, at the end of many people's master practitioner training. And I decided that I was going to headlong, for the first time in my life, try and deal with the issues around my mum dying, because I was incredibly angry. I could basically pick a fight with anyone about anything at any time, and I would excuse it that I was half Spanish and it was in my Latin blood. But the fact of the matter was that I was just a moody little bastard really and um so i remember it was in the afternoon it was at one o'clock i was almost dressed like a teenager i was in my mid-30s but i had a leather jacket and hoodie on um and sat like a grumpy teenager which is ironic given that was when my mum had died and literally in the space of a couple of hours had let go of all of my anger sadness and fear and hurt and guilt around my mum dying, which was astonishing. Um, to the extent that I can genuinely sit here, here t 
today talking to you and say that do I wish that she was here yeah of course I, I do but I'm not cut up about it anymore and it changed so rapidly and it was astonishing and I think what I, I, I took from it from a therapeutic perspective is and this really informs how I still work with clients now is that just giving the skill to someone of either doing or not doing X, Y, and Z oftentimes is good enough, but with some clients is nowhere near enough. And I think what that second experience that I had did was change my negative emotions, which changed a huge amount of values um, that I had around my health and then also changed my beliefs. And I think with certain clients now, it's really important and I'm not talking phobias and panic attacks here, but I'm talking the deeper work um, that often many of us will do is, is being able to help clients align their values and beliefs through changing their emotional state and their behaviors. And it changed my life, but it also changed very much how I approach therapy. For sure. And it, it's, it's fascinating because this is something that, you know, so many people I think could have a visceral reaction to of, well, you know, how could you ever, you know, be able to, to, to deal with that? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we learn to deal with it, don't we? We learn to respond negatively in a situation because we react. Mm. Um, and that's what I think is beautiful about, say, something like timeline therapy is that you are able to learn a different way about how you may choose to want to react differently. Um, and that's what I think is so empowering and also so important for people to be able to change and help their clients change is to be able to know how to behave in a situation differently going forwards. And if your motivation is changed and your beliefs have changed and you have the skill to know how to be different instead, whichever model of change work that you apply to that, I think you get a better more profound result with your client mm. and for sure you know having these life-changing experiences you know that you talk about uh, and talk about so eloquently helps in your own belief in what you're doing and the congruence that you put across as you do that so thank you so much for sharing thanks for giving the opportunity to do that tell us about fix my mind and the I remember when we, we spoke originally about doing the podcast, there were some interesting ideas around building and having consistency within a therapeutic business. So, yeah, I I used to get my hair cut at Tony and Guy years and years ago. And the great thing with Tony and Guy is they have a style. You know, you can go to the Tony and Guy X and Tony and Guy Y, i.e. it's the standard licensee stroke franchise model. Now, what doesn't happen with therapy is if you – go to someone somewhere, you will get the same experience for a phobia as you would somewhere else. And it seems to me, particularly when you can create a fairly clear structure on these kind of problems, that you should be able to have consistency. So I remember speaking with David, Shepard this is, um, and saying, look, it seems to me that given the sheer huge amount of people that have trained with and worked with him um, that, you know, whether you are in um, Bristol or London, you should have the same experience therapeutically. So what we have started to do is create um, from a business to consumer perspective, a model whereby you can get that same experience. So whether you see me in London or Mark Holland in Bristol, you will get exactly the same experience um, if you go and if you if you go and to see either us for a phobia. You know, it is a written down 12 page document which you have to synthesize and be able to learn how to do that process for a phobia um, and so on and so forth, depending on the the major uh, presenting problems while someone comes and sees us. So I think consistency should be totally key from a therapeutic outcomes perspective. And whilst you talk about consistency, I want to make sure that no one's uh, jumping to the wrong conclusions, uh, perhaps, that what that means is there's a, a fixed kind of change work protocol that is applied regardless of the issue, regardless of the client to each person. Yeah. So everything is personalized to the client. But I guess the, the ideology, the philosophy 
within Fix My Mind is that there are three main areas that a client needs help with in order to help them get success. And if you do and work through these three areas, you should help a client be able to significantly rapidly change. And those three areas on one is if there are events that have contributed to your problem is neutralize the impact of those events, namely so you can think about them and they no longer affect you. Two is manage the emotional state that exists around your problem, either in relation to those memories or the idea of doing something in the future and being able to know how to manage emotion on an ongoing basis, which if you do those first two parts, then you get a level, a baseline level of calm, which then allows you to get to the third stage, which is how do you have a new outcome? How do you do X, Y, Z differently um, for example, if a client's come to see me because they have a terrible fear of presenting, is how do you then present differently? Because it's all well and good neutralizing all the bad stuff, but unless the client actually knows what to do and think and feel differently, then the problem's still there. So it's having that clear philosophy of deal with events, deal with emotions, have new outcomes, which forms the bedrock and the foundation of how Fix My Mind works. Uh, and people become Fix My Mind practitioners and what do they have to go through to, to, to ensure that there's a, a, a not just consistency but also a level of quality so they have will have had to have trained with David um, to master practitioner level um, we then uh, have a lengthy interview process to make sure that someone um, you know you got if we're going to work with these guys you know you got to make sure you have a chemistry with them um that's the great thing of being your own boss right you can select the clients you can select the people you work with and equally don't so it's about making sure that there's a right fit much like there is with clients um and then explaining to them you know the upside and downside of being your own business person because ultimately that's what they're going to be and the financials that are involved in that and then once that's all in place is that they go through a seven day intensive training uh lasting about 10 hours a day uh, with David and I to get up to speed and to do and learn everything from how do you, from the first contact with the client through to saying, are we done? Making sure that that process is very clearly delineated for each of the, the presenting problems that we deal with. Which I think is just, I mean, the value of that to people is just, in, it's just incredible. And you're right. I think there is very little consistency within the therapeutic world of practice and how how are people managing that whole process from start to finish is not covered on a lot of trainings no. uh, at all and it, it can be vastly different it really can be and i think it's a real shame because you know people are coming into this oftentimes and it's, a, it's a semantic difference but i think it's an important one is some people are thinking they're working in the therapy business and my philosophy is we are in the business of therapy and therefore what's the point in just giving someone a whole load of either very poor through to excellent skills if you don't know how to run a business and most people who do this generally have had a previous career and then all of a sudden making the career jump to being self-employed ultimately and the current training for the majority of people doesn't give cover that at all you know and i think that's terrifying because then all of a sudden you go right i'm qualified i can do this um how the hell do i get clients and then all of a sudden that's why so many businesses tank within a year or two years because either people are being badly advised or don't take the right levels of action it goes back to that thing that I was saying earlier about hope people hope that they are going to get clients and you're not going to you know you need to be able to know a, how to do the whole marketing piece through to when you get an inquiry, what the hell are you going to do with it and how are you going to deal with it? And I, that, I think, is hugely needed in our industry. Mm. I uh, For sure. And I'm totally with you on this idea of I hope. Um, in fact, it reminds me. I'm sorry me to you, up on that, by the way. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it was simply that I was... Um, I was almost, as it were, not to talk technical here, but uh, talking in quotes as though, you know, if someone's starting out, that's what they might be saying. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, I've, I've picked many people up on this. I had a guy recently um, close to the new year and it made me laugh because he said to me, Howard, I, I just, I just wonder, he said, 
I wonder what 2018 will bring me, <laughs> is what he said. And I leant forward really sharpish and I went, well, I know. And he went, really? Do you know? And I went, yeah, I know. And he went, what? I said, what, you want me to tell you? He said, yeah. He said, do you really know? I said, yeah, I know. I know what 2018 will bring you. And he went, what? So I leant forward and he sort of leant forward. And there was this really weird moment. And I looked him right in the eye and I went, fucking nothing. <laughs> and he went, what? And he looked totally beaten and crestfallen. And I said, because 2018 is not a person, it's not a thing, and it's not going to knock on your door with a gift basket saying, oh, I've got, here's your, here's your gift basket for 2018. I've got three good days you're going to have, and you've got four challenging moments. There you go. Give them out. And you've got a, a few ambivalent days as well. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't mean that we can't learn to make 2018 amazing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's something that's very important to me. Yeah, I think what you I think what you just said there was really nice. I think that's a really cool way of saying it. Um, yeah. So, in terms of some of the traditional ideas about therapy, this idea of lasting personal change or therapeutic results takes a long time, often years. My guess is you think that's not necessarily the case. I think it's bollocks. If I'm honest with you. Um, I think it can be really fast. Um, as I said a bit earlier, you know, it's, I think it takes the amount of time it needs, but it ne it shouldn't need a long time. If it's taking a long time, the therapy isn't working and you've got to stop. But I genuinely think, you know, um, I, the longest I work with a client is over five sessions where I take them through what would be traditionally recognized as an NLP breakthrough process, but which has a load of other pieces involved as well. Um, you know, if you're working with a client to help their, that goes back to the whole Bateson piece of aligning values and skills and belief and behavior, you can do all of that in five sessions and make sure that a client, you know, has all of the resources to be able to get to where they need to get to. I genuinely don't understand what some people are doing for a huge amount of time. Um, I was at a um, hypnotherapist's day in October with a couple of really experienced hypnotherapists and um, someone who's been working for a couple of years came and joined us and we were chatting and they, they, they started talking about that they take 12 sessions to do a phobia and it's just like, what are you doing? I genuinely don't understand what you're doing. Um, so yeah, I think therapy should be fast, but Back to my earlier point, I don't think fast equals one session with every person every time. So what are they doing? I, I genuinely don't know. Um, and I felt embarrassed and rude to ask them. Um, but I, 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 my, I mean, my face just I would be a terrible poker player in some ways, because obviously my facial leakage was so massive that they, 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 they said, um, well, obviously you think that's not an appropriate amount of time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do, but it's a Saturday night and I'm having, I've had a few drinks and I don't really want to go there. But, um, yeah, I think things shouldn't take too, too long. I mean, what do you think? Uh, I think, uh, that your description of what rapid change means is one that I've often said on the podcast, which is for me, it's, it's as quick as it can be done, but not longer and not shorter. You know, uh, for me, it's about being present in a session in, in that moment of thinking it could be today. It, you know, the idea that I might set out with, well, it's probably going to be seven sessions. Mm. I think if I had that attitude, I, I, I would argue that there was a moral or an ethical issue that I shouldn't even see them at all. If I've already decided that it's going to be that long. Yeah. Because how can I best serve them if I'm not in the moment thinking to myself, well, it could happen. I mean, it really yeah. could. It, it, I and I know from the, 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 the people that I've worked with over the years that it, it's always a possibility, you know. Otherwise, we have no business seeing them. Yeah. And, and one thing that I've often said on, uh, on this, uh, these conversations is I firmly believe that in every single session that any therapist does with any client, that hypnosis is going to happen. I'm just never sure which way around it's going to happen. It's either... The hypnotist has been able to uh, encourage the other person to, to realize or to, to be congruent about the things, that, the belief that things can change, or the client has hypnotized the therapist into believing they're totally screwed. 
but I know hypnosis is going to happen. Yeah. How do you deal with people when they try and hypnotize you? What do you, what do you do? Um, I, I sometimes I, I, I literally have to call stop. Yeah. I mean, I have to get good at interrupting people. Um, yeah. And if, if people haven't listened to it already and want to, I would recommend going back and checking out an interview I did with Melissa Tears, yeah. who talks very eloquently about interrupting people and stopping pe- their patterns. Yeah. Um, Nick and, Kemp does this brilliantly in yeah. provocative change works as well. If, if, if people listening... Um, and I think Nick in his rapid change works, um, rapid fire round says that people think provocative is, I, I can't remember the word he uses, but is sort of, um, is not particularly positive. It's a really positive model, the provocative change works model, because it allows you and demands that you interrupt the client to bust them out of their trance. Absolutely. And I think it's sometimes just remembering that the kindest thing you can do for someone is to not let them further embed the story yeah that hasn't been helpful to them um completely how, how do you do it, go about the, that I, sorry after you howard sorry i was going to say how, how do you go about that i i let them know um both on the phone before they come to see me and equally if we're going to be doing some deeper work that if they give answers that are beginning to be extraneous or are them just starting to go into their story that i will politely through my body language and I demonstrate through a nod of the head, tell them I'm done and that I don't need any more information through to, if they carry on, I will literally put my palm with a stop sign saying stop. And, you know, and generally people get it. They don't need to go on and on and on when I've got the information that's pertinent. Well, I'll say, right, we're done. Let, let's move on to what's next. Um, otherwise, particularly clients who have seen, a number of different therapists from a whole range of potential modalities, they're so used to telling their story that to allow that to happen is not of any therapeutic benefit to them whatsoever. In fact, and particularly when you're dealing with trauma-based issues, then you can actually just make them just be very, very sad and re-traumatized. And I just don't think that is kind, fair or ethical or going to help them change. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, it's interesting because you, I think from what I've heard, you have such a good kind of intake process that by the time you see someone, it sounds like they are, I, I mean, I, I don't want to know that I want to use the word compliant, but they're certainly going to respond to the parameters that you set nicely. I, one would hope so, um, because there are a whole layers of actual compliance to be honest before someone comes in the room so there's that they've selected us we've selected to work with them it's a joint process but there are a number of deadlines and what ericsson would describe as ordeals before someone comes in the door so you know they have to pay within a certain time frame of booking their appointment they have to fill the questionnaire out to the um, required length or they don't get seen they have to fill the log out if there's an appropriate log to fill out or they won't get seen. It has to be sent by a certain time or they won't get seen. So as well as being very aware of their problem, they are also very aware that they are within a very clear process, um, which means, you know, that whole effect starts to take place from the second that you start speaking to them on the phone. I think that's a really cool thing to point out that, a lot of people think that hypnosis or the change is the stuff that happens in the session, but a lot of it can be done from that moment that they get in, brought into your process well yeah. before they've ever seen you. There's a bunch of stuff that's happening that frames this and increases compliance and their motivation to change and, and, and so on well before the in inverted commas piece takes place. Yeah. The, your, their first interaction with you, wherever that interaction is, whether it's on YouTube or your website or wherever it is, the process of change or not change begins in that precise moment and will only increase or decrease the further they go through. That process with you or likelihood to change will increase um, the further they go through that process. Everything we do 
would could arguably be described as hypnosis. I quite agree. I quite agree. What a, what a dull podcast, eh? I just I sit and agree with you. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I I genuinely think it's it's that that's how it is, and I would agree with that analysis uh, that everything is hypnosis. Changing track, James. Um, just out of curiosity, what do you think the future for therapy holds? I think it's a really exciting future. Um, I think neuroscience is going to massively impact our understanding of how the brain works even more and change how we're going to do things. And I think virtual reality and AI are also going to have a massive impact in doing what we do. Um, in terms of AI, you can literally, I saw a, a, an astonishing app that I think Harvard had created where they were able to manipulate Barack Obama's um, facial movements and cut in versions of language that he had previously done to create an automated Barack Obama that when tested, people couldn't differentiate between the real Obama and the fake Obama, which putting the whole complexity of that to one side, I think is astonishing from a therapeutic perspective, because it will mean that, you know, you could have a virtual Howard Cooper in the future, a virtual me, a virtual whomever, with literally having AI programs dealing with specific therapeutic problems. So the challenge of having a one-to-one -one therapeutic experience and the, the challenges of diary management, etc., will, will be avoided clients in the future and i think it's so exciting whether it's through virtual reality or whichever whatever the application is going to be we'll be able to have a one-on-one -on -one genuine therapeutic experience without the therapist being there and you know given that there are millions of people who need help that's really exciting i think that is so exciting for change that's, that's fascinating and also because I, mean, I have seen a rise of people beginning to embody things like virtual reality headsets in the realm of testing yeah. uh, problems. And what, what's your view on all of that? So, for example, I, they come in and they're afraid of heights and they can put on a virtual reality headset after doing some work and virtually, you know, look down over the edge and see what the response is. Do you know what? I think if, the VR works and it's an, it's a tool to help a client know that they've achieved a change. Then I think that is brilliant. Um, I think on your podcast with David Shepard, he talks about the importance of contrast and being able to measure how you feel about your problem in the past versus the idea of doing your, the problem or the outcome without the problem in the future. So being able to test robustly that, you know, is there a dog nearby if you're working with a phobia or the idea of you're going to do a presentation and you can put on a headset and it's in relation to a presentation and the client can test it in real time. I think it gives the client reassurance hugely that they know that their problem's not there. Uh, let's face it. It's, it's a mechanized version of inverted commas, self hypnosis. Um, it's just doing on a far, in on a digital perspective and i think it is hugely exciting for for clients and for us as therapists i also think there's a danger for us as therapists because you know i think what it will do is you know is allow clients to access a cheaper price point um and therefore the volume of therapists um will, it could impact that you know i think it's an economic theory called creative destructionism where something so radically new comes into a market that it can massively impact that market. I think it's hugely exciting. And I think for most people, they will still want a one-on-one -on -one experience. But equally, and you see this with the big superstars like Tony Robbins, you know, to do the one to multiple thousands. You know, it'll be interesting how it changes the therapeutic dynamic going forwards over the next few years. So have you got any thoughts how... Uh, you know, therapists can safeguard themselves against the uh, the rise and takeover of AI. Be really fucking good as a therapist. Yeah. Be really good because I think people will always go to people on a one-to-one -one basis. 
I think there'll always be a, well, not always, but I think there will all, for, for many years henceforth, will be a resistance to that um, automated experience. Perhaps in the future it will be the norm. Um, um, but get be really good. You know, learn new tools, learn new techniques. You know, you and I have spoken about, you know, a cool technique like the arrow. It's a really cool technique to work with pain. Learn a technique like that. Learn something new. Um, get really good. And then, you know, it's, it's hideous to use the expression, if you build it, they will come. But if you build a really good therapeutic set of skills and your reputation increases as a result, then clients will come. So, yeah, just be really good, I would say. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I also think neuroscience is of stunning interest. And I remember reading an article in the Times in, I think it was 2011, that said therapy hasn't caught up with neuroscience yet. And I think in the main, that is often incredibly true. You know, if you look at far more traditional approaches like CBT and psychodynamic therapy, they are rooted in the science of the 50s and 60s, and sometimes earlier than that, even if that would be called science. Um, and whilst obviously a lot of people get benefit from the likes of CBT, I think, you know, something like Havening, for example, shows and comes from a scientific background, and I think is fascinating. So, you know, whilst that is an approach that works brilliantly with amygdala-based disorders like panic and phobia and trauma, Imagine other areas of the brain that are being used for certain other conditions. So, for example, addiction. And imagine neuroscientists knowing how addiction patterns truly work in the part of the brain that that's located in and creating a therapeutic modality that works hugely scientifically and thus efficiently for working with things like addiction. And so I think from a neuroscience perspective, as our understanding, or not ours, I'm not a neuroscientist for one second, but as neuroscientists' understanding increase, and then that blends with therapy, I think that bodes incredibly excitingly for therapists and perhaps far more importantly than that, clients who, who have problems. Um, can you give us a couple of quick examples, perhaps, where people have come in one way and they leave and it really was very, very quick and transformational? So my favorite is with um, people that have got amygdala-based disorders, so panic, phobias, and trauma. So ultra-rapid, and my record is literally 11 minutes from, hello, nice to meet you at the front door, through to closing the front door as they leave. This is my office, by the way, not my house. Working in a house would be utter amateurish. Um is 11 minutes and what i love because in my office in london there's a, a lift of one of those hideously small pokey lifts and i love with clients that have got claustrophobia um to after doing the work and then say so what does the idea of going in a lift feel like now and they go well that feels a bit weird and i go well let's try it shall we and the look on their face because they're testing it they're trying to find the problem and going in the lift with them one of those hugely intimate lifts and going up and then back down and them going, that is fucking weird. I love that moment when a client goes, that's fucking weird. Because that's when you know you've totally got the result as opposed to theoretically when you're going, doing a future pace. So when you think about X now, how does it feel? You know, a lot of times client will say, yeah, totally okay. But to be able to do it for real and doing it so rapidly in a matter of moments, I absolutely love. So um, there are so many clients that just have that level of experience. But equally, as we were saying earlier, rapid can be fast, but it can equally take a little bit of time. So and this was a story um, of a, a session that I did with David, actually, um, with a, a client whose name I'm not allowed to mention for reasons that I, I just can't, unfortunately. But she was a very lovely woman who had had a very serious car accident and she had OCD. She was cleaning her house seven and a half hours a day, every single day. And we were like, oh, can you come to our houses? That would be great. And she was just like, well, I'd love to. Um, but she couldn't abide the idea of dirt anywhere in her house. And we were with her. And David had this amazing revelation. 
about what her problem was and suggested this idea to her. And literally at the suggestion of the idea, um, her problem instantaneously disappeared to the extent that she was like, well, I think I'm better. And we said, well, let's test it. So I went out into her garden and picked up a handful of dirt and her house was cream and literally just threw mud all over her house. And she was like, that's totally fine. I don't like you doing that to me, but it's totally okay um, because I know I can clean it. And it was seeing some, it was genuinely as beautiful as that, which sounds a bit weird when you talk about throwing mud being thrown everywhere, but it was beautiful to see such a rapid change because it can happen instantly. Are, are you able to tell us what it was that, that, that was the realisation, what it had all been about? So um, she had had a car accident and uh, where people, um, it was a fatal car accident and they had been given a appropriately because they had become uh, not able to work anymore. Uh, they'd been given a huge amount, you know, a, an insurance payout, but they felt very guilty about this payout. And David had the revelation that what she wasn't trying to clean was the was the dirt in her house. She was trying to clear up the idea of dirty money because she didn't feel that she deserved the money. And when she realized that it was no longer dirty money, um, her problem disappeared in a heartbeat. I, I really like that. And especially that I've often said to people that, you know, change when it happens, arguably always happens quickly. But sometimes yeah. it's just trying to find the peace to change. It's like a jigsaw. It is, right? And to this day, and I'm getting goosebumps telling you, um, it was one of those rare times, and you've worked with thousands of people, and you can control your state 99.999% of the time. But I openly and happily had a tear in my eye because it just felt so amazing to be part of such a such a change. And it's beautiful to witness. And ultimately, that's one of the most amazing things about what we do as a career is that is that is seeing that change in real time. For sure. For sure. I love that. It feels almost a little mundane now to go back to where I was going to lead this to. But um, I asked you during the rapid fire round, if you had to reread one book about change work a hundred times, what book would it be? And you didn't fall into the trap. In fact, you'd say you would read a hundred other books. So I'm curious as to not to name a hundred books that you'd read, but if you could recommend two or three for our listeners that for you have been standout reads. Um, let me, uh, as I walk across my office, uh, just tell you a few of the books that are on my shelf that I've uh, read recently. So I think you've read this one. We talked about it briefly. So Suggestible You by Eric Vance is a brilliant book. Um, uh, the Core by, um, oh, blimey, what's his name? By uh, Yaki Hinster is brilliant. Anything by the Hinster group is amazing. So um, Exponential or In the Zone by Clyde Brolin. Um Foundations of Sports and Exercise Psychology is amazing. Um, uh, Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream uh, and Lost Connections, his new one about depression is fascinating. Um, Monsters and Magical Sticks, that old classic. There's no such thing as hypnosis. Uh, Sorcery by J. Finley Hurley. I, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, Change Your Mind by Andreas. Changing Negative Self-Talk by Steve Andreas, I think is a, an astonishing book, Training Trances. Um, you know, those are some really, really cool books. Um, the reason I say, that, say, for example, the foundation of sport and exercise psychology is that in it, it talks so much about what we do as hypnotherapists. So it'll talk a lot about how visualization or what we would call self-hypnosis truly works. And it gives you some really interesting insight into how leading athletes use it appropriately. And I've learned some really fascinating things from it. So all of those books are really good, I think. And there's so many more. So I think Stephen Pinker's new book apparently is supposed to be astonishing. So I just wish I had time to read all of these thoroughly. Um, I've read all the ones I've just said, but I really want to read so much more because there's just so much amazing stuff coming out. I mean, I think I think I remember reading in the Times in 2011. Um, it said that therapy hasn't caught up with neuroscience. And I think in the main, that is genuinely very true. Um, but now we're starting to see some really interesting developments in neuroscience that are telling us why does hypnosis work or some of the techniques in NLP or other therapeutic modalities work. And I think that's really interesting. So that's why I said 
I'd read all the other stuff as opposed to reading the the same book a hundred times. Yeah, indeed. Although I'll be honest, if I said, can you name a hundred books that you would read? It might be a longer rapid fire round. <laughs> Maybe we'll introduce the slow fire round uh, <laughs> and, and we'll do that one. Um, James, when, when people are listening to this and want to get in touch, how can they, uh, where can they go? How can they get in touch with you? So you can go to fixmymind.co.uk um, where the contact details will be there or you can just email me at james at fixmymind.co.uk. Um, I have a particularly poor social media presence, which I know I must address. So the old school ways um, of website and email are the primary two ways of being able to get in touch. Well, listen, it's been absolutely uh, great to have you and I've really enjoyed this. Um, and there's so many little takeaway things that I want to go back and, you know, re-listen to uh, and hope people also have enjoyed it as much as I have. If people want to join in this conversation underneath this episode, there are uh, a little place where you can put your comments, your thoughts and reactions to this. And it would be great to uh, to see what they are. And I'm sure I'll be able to persuade James uh, to join in on the comments thread if there's anything you want to, to talk to him about. Yeah, I'd love to. And I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you, Howard. I've, I've, I've had a great time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change matters hyphen podcast. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those upcoming live events that will help you hone those change work skills.